Hey, it's Madison, the Black Eagle, and here's a highlight from today's show. Vernon Jordan's got a birthday coming up pretty soon. Don't remind me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for taking the time to be with us. When we think of Vernon Jordan, um, there are so many different levels here. I mean, there's Vernon Jordan, who... um, represents on uh, on uh, us on the board of directors of many um, organ uh, corporations there's Vernon Jordan who I remember as a, a political director for the NACP I took WC Patton's place and I was here in New York and I remember very intense meetings w- that we once were part of when you may remember this when Andy Young was with the United Nations, and he had been attacked by many of our Jewish friends. And I never will forget this meeting at the NACP convention, you, Ben Hooks, and others trying to draft a a statement. Then there is uh, Vernon Jordan, Urban League. Right. But there's also Vernon Jordan in AACP. What was it, 1961? 1961. Actually, 1960, because I worked for the Legal Defense Fund through Don Hollowell. And so I've been around a long time, Joe. 1961, you were the, what, field director? I was a field director for Georgia. And what did that entail? That meant organizing local branches, um, uh, revamping branches that had sort of fallen off the table. Uh, it meant advocacy. It meant investigations of uh, bad things that happened to black people. Uh, I travel that state of Georgia daily, weekly, monthly, going into little towns, looking for the NAACP people. And everybody always knew who the NAACP man was. And um, it was... It was the most grounding uh, constituent experience I've ever had. Uh, And it was a great way for me to get started. Most people, uh, when this political campaign started of Barack Obama, as you know, people on the right tried to be uh, critical of his community organizing experience. Now, I took exception to it because I've had similar experience that you had, different era. But I just heard you say something. It was a grounding experience. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm proud to be a lawyer, but I'm also equally proud to have been a community organizer. And I think that the president's experience as a community organizer reflected itself in the... uh, in the campaign that he ran, I mean, nobody thought, including myself, that he would end up being the president of the United States. I did not believe it. You didn't think it would happen? I did not. I did not. After Iowa, I had sort of second thoughts, but Iowa was the, was the breaking point. I, I, I saw you on, on several stages at the time, not giving... You know, it's you try to read body language. So I, I got the sense, and we would all sit there and watch TV and wonder, where is Vernon Jordan? Well, I this? was for Hillary. And I know you, I mean, you got oh, a yeah. close relationship with the, right, with, uh, right. the Clintons. I'm no ifs, ands, buts about I'm that. I'm too old, Joe, to trade friendship for race. 
for for race. Yeah, too old. And at that. the time, but but I why did Iowa change your opinion? Your didn't your change process? my opinion. Iowa led me to believe that black people who were also skeptical would have a change of heart and mind based on Iowa. Did white people, and I heard Nathaniel Jones, who we spoke to yesterday, good friend, say that he believed what happened with Barack Obama and particularly white America was that they, and I've never heard this term before, they voted their preference over their prejudice. That's a good way to put it. Uh, I don't know how you prove that. Uh, And I'm not interested in analyzing it. I'm just interested in the result. And the result is, is he... He's president of the United, United States. States. It's the only thing that matters. And, and as one who has advised presidents, how do you think he's doing in these short 100 and what now, less, less than 130 he gets, days? He gets an A for leadership. He gets an A. In that he's taken the initiative... He's focused us on certain attention. He's given the country and the world something that it has longed for for eight years. And that is what? Leadership. We didn't have it with Bush. I don't think so. Uh Your book, your new book, I do want to, I'm going to bounce around because I know we got a lot lot of things. All right. You have your new book out and we didn't get a copy of it. But well, you didn't go on Amazon.com. And you, you didn't go to the book. <laughs> no, store. that's his way of saying buy the sucker. Uh, but 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 what this book is is, is for the purpose of what? Telling a, a story of Vernon Jordan that hasn't no, been told no, before. No, what? It's, it has, has has less to do with me than it has to do with the fact that most of our history is oral. It's just passed down. And I thought that these were necessary, provocative, advocacy-type speeches that I wanted recorded. And if you notice the book, every speech has a prelude, which puts the speech and the circumstances of the speech in historic context. Why I made it, what it had to do with leadership. Uh, what it meant to me, what it meant to the constituency that I was representing, which was the National Urban League for the most part. There are one or two speeches, uh, and make it plain, that took place after I left the Urban League. Now, I have a theory, Joe, that there is a distinction between black leaders and leading blacks. When I was head of the Urban League, I was a black leader because I had a constituency. Right. When I left the Urban League, I ceased to be a black leader. I became a leading black because I had no constituency. I had nobody that I had responsibility for. So, so how did that manifest itself, being a leading black? Uh, I get called on like you call on me today. I'm not here as the head of the Urban League. I'm just a banker and a lawyer. I have no constituency. I'm just Vernon Jordan person with a history in the civil rights movement. But do, I have no constituents. But do you have impact? And is it in well, that's I, Yeah, that's not for me to say. I think uh, the answer is you didn't bring me on this program because you had nothing better to do. You thought maybe I had something to say based on my historic experience in the civil rights movement. 
Now, I think when Vernon Jordan speaks, whether he, sp- whether he speaks or spoke as head of the Urban League or he speaks now, I find myself often asking, what does Vernon Jordan think? Yeah. Or if there's an absence, I wonder, and I, and I, and I made this uh, observation on the air, where's Vernon Jordan? Yeah. How come we haven't heard from him? Yeah, well, the answer to that is that when I was running the Urban League, I had a responsibility to be on every issue be out there because I had a constituency, 118 local urban leagues across the country, almost 100 years of history. Uh, So that was my job. I made a transition. I have another job. I'm four days at Lazard. I'm one day at Aiken Gump, Strauss, Howman, Fell. Mm -hmm. So I made the transition. That does not, however, rob me of the opportunity and at times the responsibility to say what's on my mind, and I pick those judiciously. Uh, I think there's nothing worse than an ex-civil rights leader running his mouth day in and day out. We sometimes may not know what he's talking it, about. Well, is it is it also easier as an ex-civil rights leader, and I'm, I'm going to get in, in, in some internal affairs here, having watched uh, how the NACP operates, mm-hmm. and I'm always kind of smiling at each other here, but... You know, you you had a board of directors. We've got this, the NACP has this huge 64-member board. Uh, The person who is the CEO or the executive director, tremendous amount of of, uh, pressure. Do you feel a a little far more freedom, or does those positions you hold, particularly in the boards or the law firms, do they restrict you in a way? Well, I spoke to the Cleveland Urban League Conference the year after I stepped out. Right. And I began my address by saying, free at last, free at last. There is there is a um, circumference. There is a binding um, aspect of your life when you represent a constituency because your responsibility is to represent that constituency. Your responsibility is to hear that constituency out. I don't have that responsibility now. I got you. I'm going to take a break. And what I want to talk about next is how the NAACP impacted a young Vernon Jordan. Happy to talk about Maybe a Vernon Jordan in high school. Yeah, happy to talk about that. All right, and in your community. We'll do that right after this, everybody. Madison live at the um, 100th convention of the NAACP. Don't go anywhere. Madison with you here, the Black Eagle flying high at the NAACP 100th Convention, and Vernon Jordan is uh, with us. Um, A couple of things we were talking about. Matter of fact, we were going to get Ernie Green of Little Rock Nine coming in. Um, Let me go have you go back uh, to your uh, childhood and growing up in, uh, in in the Deep South. And you're in high school and you're playing in the band. But what kind of impact, if if at all, did the NAACP have on your life or the life of your community at that time? Well, the Atlanta branch of NAACP was a uh, was a powerful force and influence in my life. My parents never uh, missed taking us to 
the January 1st Emancipation Proclamation Program. Um, and the highlight of my professional career in its embryonic stages was that I got to give that address at Union Baptist Church in 1966. Mm. Uh, that was great. And on stage was mm-hmm. Austin Thomas Walden. And Austin Thomas Walden was who? He was the, at that time, the ultimate civil rights leader. It was Austin A.T. Uh, Walden first and then Don Hollowell. And it was after that speech... A.T. Walden, with braces on his legs, walked over to me and said, Son, you hit a home run. That was like the laying on of hands, right? That as a kid, I would go with my parents to Emancipation Proclamation, to NACP mass meetings. And then five years after my law school, I get to give the address. It meant so much to me. And then in 1961... Um, I left Don Hollowell's law office to be Georgia field secretary, and I worked for the great Ruby Hurley, who was who was spectacular. Miss Hurley. That's right. Miss Hurley. She was spectacular. And uh, Medgar Evers was my counterpart in Mississippi. Bob Saunders was my counterpart in Florida. I.D. Quincy Newman was my counterpart in South Carolina. Uh, W.C. Patton. Yeah, I replaced his, that's, that's his position. I he took, taught right? me everything that I know about, about voter, voter registration. registration. Right. And his counterpart was John Brooks in, in Richmond. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a great experience. And, and to organize a branch in Hartwell, Georgia, and to work it out with Lucio Black to send the membership cards to my Atlanta office. And then we would have a mass meeting, and we would pass our membership cards like it was graduation time. The impact on the other people who were not walking up to get their membership cards mm-hmm. was to get a membership card. Now, people need to, let's go back because people need to remember in some of those locations, and you can tell this story to people who find it unbelievable who won't join NACP today. There were branches that were outlawed. By what was it? The state of the, Alabama. It was Alabama had outlawed the uh, NACP uh, branches. NACP branches were outlawed. Ruby Hurley had to move the office from Birmingham to to Atlanta, and you remember uh, George Wallace requested the membership list, and Bob Carter argued the case in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, saying that we did not have to turn over the list, and we, we won that case. It was a big dispute within the legal community of the NAACP about how that case ought to be ought to be argued. Why did you decide to be a lawyer? I um I wanted to be a lawyer because A.T. Walden would come to my church for Vesper hour and I would listen to him speak about segregation and he would say, I can still hear him. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal, you talking about segregation. And I, I, I liked the way A.T. Walden walked. I liked the way he talked. I liked the way he dressed. And I liked what he did. And so I grew up as a kid in Atlanta at the Butler Street YMCA and St. Paul AME Church wanting to be a lawyer like A.T. Walden. So what would you say to young people today? We were talking, we were laughing about our ages and, and Ernie Green came by and uh, uh, 
you've got a generation coming up. But isn't it amazing that they get to see a Barack Obama? I mean, I get to see, I got to see a Vernon Jordan in my formative years. I got to see a Ben Hooks. Yeah, but what's, Im- what's important is, is that, that they understand that before Barack Obama, that was Primus King and uh, <clears throat> the plaintiffs in the white primary cases, George Elmore and, and Lonnie Smith, um, there was a piece in the paper the other day in the New York Times about uh, Gaines versus Missouri and how the plaintiff Gaines disappeared. Uh, what Gaines, the article Gaines was who Gaines, wanted to go Gaines, to law school in Missouri. In Missouri. Gaines, Missouri. He right. was a plaintiff. And right, he, right. he disappeared after the lawsuit was filed and it was won. That case was argued in 1938 by Charles Hamilton Houston. The New York Times article did not mentioned the fact that when Charles Hamilton Houston got up to argue the case, Justice McReynolds of Tennessee turned his back. No. Turned his back on Charles Hamilton Houston's argument in Gaines versus Missouri. Was not noted in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or the Washington Post. Can you imagine that a justice of the United States Supreme Court turning his back on an NAACP Inc. Fund lawyer as he makes his argument. I was never aware of that story. Look at Bob Carter's book. It's right right there. Bob Carter was a student. Right. And was sitting in the courtroom, and he talks about it in his book. And so when, when, so it, 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 and we only have two minutes left. So what a perspective that you have now with the current confirmation going on, uh, when and I'll, I'll close with this question: Should her experience, her perspective as a Latino woman, not that it would make law, but doesn't isn't our perspectives very important? Well, our life experiences influence what we do and what we think. It's and what we become. And it's it's ridiculous to suggest otherwise, and pretty much the same way that the senator from Alabama, uh, Sessions, Sessions, right, everything that he says and utters reflects how he grew up and what he believed in Alabama. Nobody's criticizing him for that. I I, I saw a quote from him the other day where he said that he thought the Ku Klux Klan was a a, a, a great organization. Except when he found out they smoked pot. <laughs> <laughs> they did more than smoke pot. Well, they sure did. But 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 here's, a, again, a man who then takes exception. She's going to be confirmed. She should be confirmed. No question in your mind about that. I think it's a political grand slam, her appointment. She's earned it, and she's going to be good, and she's going to enhance Well, Vernon Jordan, I'm out of time. We could go on and on and on. I promise you that here's what I'm going to do. I am going to go buy the book. That's a good idea. And and, and and encourage everyone else. We'll put it on the bookshelf, on the Madison bookshelf. Then I'm going to stop by your office and get an autograph. And and Vernon Can Read is also worthy of being on your shelf. You are worthy of many things, man. Let me welcome... uh, 
principal of Stony Brook Middle School in, in Naptown, Indiana, Indianapolis, and uh, Principal Jason Smith. Hey, thank you so much. This story uh, caught our attention as it did um, probably a lot of people around the, uh, around the country. Um, you had a, this young, what was he, an eighth grader, wouldn't take his hat off. We, we kind of explained it to, to people. Uh, what, what went down? He wouldn't take his hat off. How did it come to your attention? Cause it started in the classroom, didn't it? Yes, sir. Um, my Dean, one of my deans, Bianca Rivers was, uh, called to come and get him and, uh, she couldn't get him to take his hat off. And so she texted me and I went to her office and uh, saw the young man. I, I previously, you know, had several conversations with him. Um, and I just, you know, sat across from him and asked him, uh, you know, why, why he didn't want to take his hat off. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and then he explained that his parents got his hair cut and he didn't like um, the way his hairline came out. And then, you know, he showed it to us and we both looked at each other like, hey, it looks okay to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just explained to him that I've been cutting hair my whole life and, and showed him some pictures of my son's hair um, that I've cut and asked him if, you know, if I went home and got my liners, if, you know, and fixed his line, would he go back to class? And he said, uh, yeah. And so I went home and got my clippers and came back and uh, touched him up a little bit. Now let me wait a minute. Let me, I understand you. You your your early life. You are a barber. No, sir. My my cousin was a barber when when I was in high school, and I would go over to his shop after school and watch him cut oh. hair. And he oh, me, I see. Okay. Yeah, he give me his old clippers. And and you and you learn you 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 learn from him. But here's the interesting thing. A lot. What caught my attention was, you. You seem to be a. This is a very unique approach you took, because some principals or or people or a dean might suspend him. You chose yes, not to do that. You chose not to do that because you recognized what that something was wrong. Something was bothering him. Yes, sir. You, you know, we know that uh, black and Latinos kids are disproportionately, you know, uh, put out of school. And um, I'm finishing my, finishing my dissertation on early childhood trauma. And, and we, you know, what I've learned over the years is we have to, we got to make sure that we take care of the kids' emotional states and, and their physiological needs, or, or else they're not going to be ready to learn. So I try to put that in practice um, in our school with the teachers our district is aligned um, with the practices of teaching the whole child. And so we just know it's just not a game of coming in and, and teaching kids anymore. Uh, t- teachers and educators are mothers, fathers, mentors, counselors, um, and we just have to do whatever it takes to make sure that our kids get a great education. And somebody, and you have to, and, and are they teaching that in in? In, in college now is that part of the of the curriculum i asked that because i think it really should be it, it should be um especially anyone that's going into urban ed excuse me uh, i know butler university here um they have an applied neuroscience course for uh first you know freshmen uh educators 
or people that want to be educators um, to teach them why kids do what they do, um, going beyond classroom management and behavior, like understanding the kids. A lot of teachers are socialized, completely different environments than uh, uh-huh. inner city kids. And you have to understand the, the impact of, you know, trauma and adversity and, and stressful lives of youth. Um, and once you understand why they do what they do, you can be more child-centered and empathetic and uh, vulnerable and, uh, you know, just do better things for kids instead of yeah. putting them out. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're talking with uh, uh, Jason Smith, is a principal of uh, the Sandy Brook Middle School in Indianapolis. Uh, and I, I spoke, I think I was in Peoria, I'm not certain, not far from you. And there was a principal that I met, just like you, just a a, a, a brilliant young African American principal who had pretty much the same philosophy. And he told a story, and this is what made me want to interview you. But he told me a story about a young black kid who came into into school, came into his classroom and started terrorizing the classroom. The teacher, he broke out a window. The teacher, as you can imagine, ran down the hall, went to the principal, this principal, I can't think of his name now, I can see his face, uh, uh, Principal Smith, and the, the principal came in, cleared the classroom out, sat the young man down, and, and like you did, and said, what's wrong? He didn't right. call the police. He didn't call the police. He said, what's wrong? And the young yes, man sir. said, before, now this is fascinating, before I left the house, my mother said to me, I wish you were dead. Wow. Wow. And that's what, that's what said that, and that's what he brought to that classroom. Yes, and sir. He, he realized, he realized you don't call the police on him, and and that and that started a whole new relationship. And the of course the young man broke down in tears and all that. But this is kind of what you're talking about, isn't it? Yes, sir. All behavior is communication, um, and we don't know what's being said to kids if they ate dinner last night, if their parents had an argument, and we have to assume that when kids kids don't wake up and say i'm gonna go and terrorize my teacher um you know something happened and and we have to keep that in the forefront of our mind as educators so that when kids are misbehaving you know we can give them time to cool down and and once they're they're cool and calm you know find out what's wrong with them and if Mm -hmm. you know we can help help but you definitely don't call the police or, you know, suspend kids, you know, there's got to be consequences if, if for actions. Um, but, you know, that's the police and suspension should be the last thing that happens. And is there, and, and is there, how does this help the student other than and obviously, you know, they don't end up arrested or handcuffed or slammed, body slammed, but how can it in the long run help the student? Well, we know that, you know, building safe, healthy relationships can actually heal the brain um, that from the trauma that's, you know, that has been created. Um, 
and and you show kids that everyone in the world is not mean and and out to get you. And I think you you model an empathy, you know, whether they can put that into words or not. And um, and the kid kind of has a little bit more hope, you know. Somebody cares, you know. They didn't put me out of class like I've been put out my whole life. They sat down and talked to me, and maybe they'll come to that person the next time that they're upset before they, you know, toss a room. How is the young man doing now? He's doing great. Um, Not wearing a hat, but he's doing okay, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. I called him and his dad over the weekend. Um, You know, when I started getting emails from Singapore and Thailand and Sweden (laughs) um, and realized how big this was, I wanted to check on him and make sure – this wasn't too much for him um, right. and that he's doing okay. And he seems to be liking the attention, uh, which is good. Yeah. And hopefully, yeah, yeah hopefully, um, you know, this will motivate him even further. It, 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 to, it is a, it's a, it, it really is for all of us, parents, students, teachers, principals, administrators. It's really a teachable moment, isn't it? Yes, sir. Yes. And if, if, if I can, you know, get a handful of educators to reflect on their practices and and, 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 and model patience and empathy, um, you know, that if that could help, you know, a handful of kids, um, then I'm absolutely glad that, you know, this went viral. And and what about your, your the principal? What about your staff? What has been the response of your, uh, of, of your staff? They're they're excited. Um, I'm really pretty quiet and introverted, and so the attention and you know they say telling me that I'm famous and all that stuff is is a bit much for me. But they're excited and and congratulating and mostly like I've been doing this work with them for two years now, and I just hope that modeling and and walking my talk um, can reemphasize that this is how we operate. This is how we treat kids. We don't hold grudges. We don't yell, get out of my classroom, yeah. see what's going on, and, and, and help them. Well, you know, uh, you know, Principal Smith, you may have to start a, a barber shop curriculum. <laughs> we're, actually, we're actually working on that. Um, I bet a, you a man, are. <laughs> a man from uh, Honolulu is sending us two barber chairs. No, uh, come on. Yeah, wait, wait yes, a minute. Sir. Wait a minute. Some, wait a minute. Somebody sees your story, and he's shipping two barber chairs out to you? Yep. He said it'll, they'll be here um, next week. And so we're going to find space. And the high school has a um, has a barber class. I'm going to reach out to wow. them and see if we can borrow some of the kids, the seniors um, that are learning to cut hair. And see if they can come over for a barbershop club um, after school Man, a couple of days now a week. That, that is that is different. That is different from when I was in school uh, back during the caveman days. Uh, we we if you learn it, most folks learned how to cut their hair. They bootlegged, you know. <laughs> they, they cut it on a yep. sat, they cut it on a Saturday in somebody's house, you know. But that's fascinating. Wow, this is amazing how one story, one little act of understanding has has, has uh, morphed into uh, something uh, absolutely uh, uh, productive. That's that's really great to hear. I'm so glad that we, we had a chance to talk to you. 
and and, I, and appreciate it. Yes, sir. I, I appreciate you reaching out. Um, educators go above and beyond all the time, and I'm just glad that this caught some attention so that, yeah. you know, the, the public education is severely underfunded, and it's like the most important job that I can think of. You know, so if we can get attention to what educators do every day, because this isn't uncommon that happens in our school. We treat yeah. kids like this every day. Yeah. And now we have a new secretary of education that just got yes. confirmed uh, yesterday. So um, uh, hopefully uh, he will respond to the kinds of uh, this kind of story. And uh, and and appreciate uh, what you've done there at uh, at your school. But thank you so much. I, I'm glad you came on. Glad we talked. Thank you, about sir. It. All right. Absolutely. Okay. Forty-one after. Uh, you too. You can listen to yours truly, Madison, the Black Eagle, live every Monday through Friday on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.